only one drug is so addictive, nine out of ten laboratory rats will use it. And use it. And use it. Until dead. It's called cocaine. And it can do the same thing to you. Hello, welcome. I'm Ben Boyce. This is the Dr. Junkie Show. And today's episode is about rats and all the things we've learned from them about drugs and addiction. A lot of that knowledge has been misrepresented at times to defend the drug war. But as we'll see in this episode, we can learn a ton about how to make things better by just looking at what we already know and then making informed policy decisions. But we don't usually do that in the United States at least not when it comes to drug laws. So this episode will also make clear, yet again, that the war on drugs is deliberately designed to make addiction something that happens as often as possible and is as bad as possible whenever it happens. We couldn't design a system to make things worse even if we tried. Seriously. So let's start there. With the lies that many of us were told about experiments performed on rats, and the confusion created by those stories. The most famous rats on drugs study is probably Bruce Alexander's redone rat park experiment, performed in the late 1970s. And even though by the time I was born, in 1980, the myth had already been debunked, I was still told that rats given cocaine in unlimited supplies will use it until they die. That's the same story Bruce was given, but it didn't sound right to him. So he decided to take another look at the experiment, which allegedly proved that popular piece of trivia knowledge. And he noticed something pretty obvious right off the bat. The rats in this experiment weren't just given drugs in addition to normal life. They were removed from their normal life setting and placed in a new cage with cocaine and nothing else. Bruce read the experiment and thought, well, no shit. If you take everything that feels good, safe, or familiar in its life, and then offer a chemical substitution? Of course, any living thing is likely to turn towards the substitution, and to stay turned towards it, since it's their only option. That's the entire problem with addiction and tough love. They make the problem worse. When people start to struggle, we push them out, fire them, cut them off, and tough love them out of our lives. It shouldn't surprise us that they respond by doing what works. More drugs. So Alexander ran it back, and this time he chose healthy rats who lived well with other rats, and he kept them in their normal cages with others in a familiar environment. He made sure there were toys and sexual partners, and that food and water were easy to find in addition to the drugs offered. And what do you know, most of those rats never developed addictions. He also reran the original experiment, and unsurprisingly, he found that the rats put in a toyless, friendless cage used 19 times the morphine of those left in their comfortable, familiar homes. As Johan Hari has been telling us for years, addiction is not a disease of morals. It's a disease of loneliness and disconnection. When our lives are filled with meaningful things, we seldom struggle with addiction at all, even if the chemicals we want are available, and even if they cause dependency. Bruce challenged one of the taken-for-granted paradigms of drug addiction in animal studies. Instead of looking for what killed drug users, he started looking for what could keep them alive. 
and his perspective informed mine. That's what science is. It's challenging the status quo, double-checking the taken for granted, and pressing against the limits of what we're told to accept as fact. If we just embrace that perspective in reference to our drug laws, we take a massive step forward towards compassion. Speaking of science, Alexander wasn't even the first person to perform experiments on rats, which revealed how addiction and desire work in the brain. B.F. Skinner's experiments were designed to provide quantifiable, replicable data to show what makes conscious beings tick, what makes us do things. I talk about Freud a lot, not because he was some super awesome scientist, but just the opposite. As even he said numerous times, he realized he was born in an era when we had no ability to look inside the mind, to map the neuron or explore the cell. So he decided that instead of just giving up, he would just leave the science to those who would come after him, and instead, he'd try to tease out some answers by asking people questions and looking for patterns in their responses. Freud's process was about introspection, but Skinner was about science. He built his career around the idea that you should be able to verify and record data if you really wanted to say anything about, well, anything. So instead of using Freud's methods of spitballing based on intuition and introspection, he designed experiments to figure out what made animals do what they do. And those experiments can tell us a lot about how addiction works. One of the most infamous is now called the Skinner Box. It's a rat cage with an electrified floor to provide punishment, a lever the rats can push at will, and a hole that delivers food pellets, aka rewards, whenever the researchers decide to do so. Skinner was trying to figure out a lot with one experiment, like any good scientist. So of course, he noted what we would all expect, that the positive reinforcement of giving a food pellet to the animal every time they press the lever caused them to press the lever whenever they were hungry. And also, predictably, when the lever resulted in a shock, they pressed it a lot less, or not at all. Let's set aside the punishment for the moment, because the positive reward, the food, is where this experiment gets creepy. Skinner also found that if you were a sadistic rat owner who wanted to make your rat push the button as often as possible, the best way to do that was to have the researchers reward the lever pushes randomly in unexpected and unpredictable patterns. Instead of giving the rat a reward with every push, researchers could maximize the lever pushing by randomly rewarding some of them while not rewarding others. They'll press the lever or use the drug way more if the rewards are random than if the rewards are consistent. Think about this before we move on, because it's pretty damning to the current design of our war on drugs. When animals, or presumably humans, are given steady doses of a rewarding thing, like a drug or some food, we obviously come back the next time we're in the market for that same feeling. When we go looking for something to eat or some fun and instead we find a bad time, like say we try LSD and have a challenging trip, or we use cocaine for a few days and note a terrible bounce back period that just isn't worth it, in that case, we learn not to go back the next time. That's basic punishment theory, and we could spend a whole episode on why it also doesn't work to stop drug use or addiction. But we don't have to refer to animal studies to understand that when we say something is a disease, 
It doesn't undo the systemic stigma which is evident in virtually every form of addiction treatment available. Those moralistic treatments include things like 12-step programs where God or higher powers are preached as a solution, or drug courts which hold jail over your head if you use, and they often refuse to allow medication-assisted treatment even though it's the gold standard of addiction treatment and it improves success rates by around 50%. The most frequent arrests in the United States are still for drugs. The way you stigmatize something is to make it illegal, describe it as dirty and the opposite of it as clean, encourage family members to push people who have it or use it away, and force those of us who have it to the streets, to underworld drug dens where we purchase overpriced, polluted products. Punishment can't solve addiction, but it can make it a lot worse. But for now, back to the rats. What B.F. Skinner found was that when we find something pleasant, but it's inconsistent and unpredictable, and likely to be cut off at any time, then we'll use more of it, not less, than if we had a safe, consistent supply. We'll press the lever that delivers any reward more often as our success becomes less predictable. Our current war on drugs is designed to make sure that pure and predictable drugs, which could cost a few bucks a gram and be easy to get in any city in the United States, are instead unpredictable, illegal, expensive, and always threatened with being cut off. We've understood Skinner's findings for decades, but we don't care. The war wages on, designed to make sure that any time an addiction shows up, it will become as life-altering as it could possibly become. There's even more we can learn from rats that point right at the terrible design of our current war on drugs. That is, at least if its goal was actually to reduce harm or save lives. The CDC on Wednesday shared the grim statistic. It represents a nearly 30% increase in overdose deaths nationwide from the from year December before. December 2019 to December 2020. Information from the CDC deaths. shows a record number of Americans died from Last drug year, overdoses. A record 93,000 people in the period. U.S. overdosed on drugs and Nationally, died. Nationally, a near 30% increase last year. As we've all probably heard, the CDC is currently estimating that more than 100,000 overdose deaths took place last year alone in the United States. That means we've got a big problem with tolerance. Now, of course, it's a ton of other stuff too, including the fact that drugs like heroin or fentanyl are illegal, so we have to purchase them on the street, which leads to all sorts of contaminated supply issues or to dealers substituting one drug for another. But those concerns, as real as they are, are for another episode, and for a lot of episodes I've already recorded, like the xylazine episode a few weeks back. Now, of course, this isn't a podcast about medical advice, and I'm not a medical doctor, but the truth is, heroin is not something that regular users overdose on very often at all. Our bodies do some incredible stuff when we use a substance for a long time, and one of the things they do to keep us safe is to tolerate things we find enjoyable, pleasant, or unthreatening. Now that's disappointing for users because it's why we have to keep using more of a drug to achieve the same results which were once possible with lower doses, but it's a huge benefit to our bodies, to our survival, because we can survive higher doses if and when they do show up. That's the reason our bodies do it. We see something as good, desirable, and likely to be back so we make space for it. Now tolerance doesn't just happen when we take a drug. It happens before that, when we smell it, when we pull out our kit, 
when we hear the snap of breaking down the blunt wrapper or the boiling of the dope in the spoon. It happens when we smell the dope house, when we see our dealer, when we turn off the freeway and into their neighborhood, when we get to the methadone clinic, or when we exit the pharmacy. Anytime our bodies notice a clue that tell it that we're about to use, it starts to adjust to make way for that drug. It's the same thing that happens when you smell dinner or think about your favorite meal and your mouth begins to water and your stomach growls. Our bodies begin to prepare for incoming substances or behaviors before we actually consume them. That's what tolerance is. To work properly, our bodies have to notice those clues, which means tolerance depends, in many ways, on us feeling comfortable and safe. This is part of the reason set and setting are so important. Drugs affect us differently depending on where we use them, when we use them, who we're with. When we change just one of those things, like some studies have done with rats who use large doses of heroin daily, our tolerance fails, and many of the rats die when they take the same dose as normal in a new cage with different colored walls. That's all it takes, different colored walls and we can die from overdose. Now knowing this, we should be going out of our way to make sure that anyone who's using daily doses of a drug like heroin or fentanyl has a safe, comfortable, familiar place to use, a safe, predictable, familiar supply. Once more, let's back up and think about how this plays out in our culture, in the war on drugs in the United States. Right now, we have a system designed to make sure we use in dangerous locations at unexpected times, in a Taco Bell bathroom today and at a friend's house tomorrow. We might smell heroin boiling before we use today, but hear fentanyl sizzling the next day, and then the crush of an Oxycontin the next, leaving our bodies unable to accurately guess at either the potency or the schedule of our next dose. And of course, even if we use the same amount of the same drug at the same time, in the same fashion, in the same setting every day, we're still stuck dealing with a market where the heroin I buy from my dealer today is not the same heroin I might buy from him tomorrow. It might be dozens of times stronger, or cut with fentanyls but look and smell exactly the same. We couldn't design the system any worse if we tried. Other experiments have helped us understand what happens in our brains and bodies when we use particular drugs, like one experiment discussed by Dr. Judy Grizzle in her book, Never Enough, to describe the approach avoidance process. Rats who are given daily injections of cocaine every time a door opens in their cage and they walk down a hall will quickly learn to run down that hallway whenever the door opens. It is, after all, cocaine. But that only happens at first. As more time passes, the rat's behavior changes. And anyone who's used cocaine for longer periods of their life will understand exactly what's going on. When the door opens, the rat will still charge down the hall. But then it stops, it turns around, it turns back around, and it sort of haggles back and forth with itself, indecisive. Of course, eventually it always takes the cocaine, but the hesitation gets longer and more stressful as the days go by. The reason is dopamine. For a long time, I thought that dopamine was synonymous with pleasure. That's a simplified message I was taught by my culture. Again, I could do a whole episode on how the United States conflates consuming with working 
and how we sort of mix them together and ignore all the labor to focus on the products that we can eventually buy. But dopamine is not reward so much as motivation. And we've recently come to recognize a much more complicated story than even that. Our brains aren't like solos, they're like symphonies, with various parts playing roles at various times and varying degrees. That means when we lose our ability to effectively make and use dopamine, we don't totally stop feeling anything like pleasure, although it might look like that from the perspective of those around us. Parkinson's is a dopamine disorder, and if you've ever known someone who's struggling with it, like my grandfather is right now, they appear to be depressed, docile, and without much motivation. That's because dopamine is a motivational neurotransmitter. It's responsible for prediction, not pleasure. Motivation, not reward. We discovered this in yet another rat experiment, when rats were bred with knockout genes, which made their typical dopamine pathways to and from the nucleus accumbens, the brain's pleasure center, unresponsive. The rats appeared to be joyless in many ways compared to their counterparts that still had those pathways intact. But when researchers looked closer, they found that the story wasn't quite that simple. Dopamine's effects are a big part of our learning process, and that's why it sometimes does feel pleasurable to experience a dopamine increase. But dopamine can also be unenjoyable. The same level of dopamine is released when we lose a big bet as when we win one, for example. Life is about adapting to our environments and learning to be our best selves. And dopamine helps us do that by marking memories and helping us predict the next time they happen. So it spikes in the process of prediction, like when you're making a big wager, not in the process of enjoyment, like later when you might have won it. So when they lose their dopamine pathways, the rats in this study simply employ different methods of learning using different brain circuitry. And tellingly, they're more cautious and in-depth in their examinations of new items put into their cages before they touch them than the other rats are, the ones who still have their dopamine pathways intact. Dopamine makes us less cautious because it's associated with that motivation and prediction. It makes us feel like we might know what's about to happen next, so much so that we make a move before we actually do know, like we've learned. These rats, they can still learn things. They can create memories, and then they can make logical decisions based on those previously created memories, even without dopamine. In other words, they can experience something like pleasure and even prediction, as evidenced in the study from how they reacted when researchers gave them daily clues just before a meal was going to be delivered. They still figured out ways to predict its arrival, even though their dopamine pathways weren't working. If you've heard me talk about the thrill of the hunt and the thrill of the feast, you understand why. We don't have to hunt in order to feast, and we don't necessarily lose the joy of feasting just because we stumbled onto a meal instead of searching it out. Dopamine is about motivation and prediction, not pleasure. We can thank our rodent friends for this discovery as well. Of course, rats aren't the only animals we've treated awful in our research to answers for human problems associated with drugs. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug in the United States, and we haven't begun to find out all of the ill effects. Anybody that grew up hearing this was probably referring to experiments where rhesus monkeys were strapped into breathing mass and forced to inhale just weed smoke for extended periods of time. And of course, they developed brain damage. 
their oxygen was cut off. But the government blamed that brain damage on the weed, not on the oxygen deprivation. And the war waged on, defended yet again by more awful experiments full of obvious holes. It turns out cannabinoids do not cause brain damage. How could they? We're all living in bodies that are packed with cannabinoid receptors and cannabinoid chemicals which interact with them. It isn't just anandamide, the so-called runner's high cannabinoid we all get when we work out super hard. It's a symphony of cannabinoids which keep everything in our bodies working smoothly. If you want to hear more about this, check out my recent medicinal marijuana episode with Kate Sullivan. For now, I want to share one final experiment that shows just how impressively misguided the war on drugs is if the goal was really to save lives. And this one was performed on humans. I grew up in a big family with two working parents, neither of whom had college degrees. We didn't have a ton of money, and it's expensive to take a family of six to dinner anywhere. So when we did go out, it was maybe more memorable than it was for most families, because it didn't happen very often. Pizza Hut was one of my favorites. It had this classy atmosphere, a lovely aroma that stuck to you before you walked in, and the four-player Simpsons video game in the lobby. You know the one if you're older than 35. And like most restaurants in the 1980s, it had two sections, smoking or non-smoking. If you've ever lived in a world where people could just fire up cigarettes indoors while you're eating nearby, this might sound terribly annoying. But back then, it was just the way things are, and a lot of people smoked. But in 1995, California became the first state to ban smoking indoors, in places like the Pizza Hut that I used to love as a kid. As of October 2021, more than 80% of U.S. citizens lived under some sort of smoking ban in their specific area. But what's interesting to me is the numbers that go with that ban. Because it wasn't the same sort of ban as those we have on drugs. You could still buy cigarettes, and you could still smoke them, but you had to do it in sanctioned areas, which have now been shown to reduce not only levels of addiction in overall population, but also overall use in those taking a substance. The percentage of people with college degrees classified as heavy smokers, that's 24 or more cigarettes a day, it decreased from 33% in 1980 to 7% in 2018, largely due to heightened taxes, propaganda, and most importantly, the use of sanctioned smoking areas, spaces that legitimize non-smoking areas. Now you might think that was just because we found out that cigarettes were dangerous or caused lung cancer, but we knew about that decades earlier, and the science had continued to pile up. But between 1965 and 1980, the rates of smoking in the United States decreased by less than 10%. The big drop didn't come until after that, in large part because of sanctioned use areas. This is a quote from my book, Dr. Junkie, in a section where I'm actually performing the thought experiment I've been hinting at all episode, deliberately designing a system to make sure that addictions are as frequent as possible and that when they show up, they're as bad as they can possibly be. And I come to the same conclusion, that the system we would build would look exactly like our current system. If you wanted to maximize someone's chances and severity of addiction, you would design a system just like the United States. Here's the quote. It doesn't get any better if we follow through with the experiment. 
We can drop a patient off in any city in the United States and be certain the environment we're looking to create already exists. Addictions are driven by the terror that one's medication might be withdrawn at any moment. That detox is always right around the corner, no matter what one does today. So we should stigmatize and criminalize our patient for their use, shaming and punishing them at every opportunity if we really wanted them to dive deep into their addiction. While drugs will always have a reliably pleasant effect, we should reduce our patient's access to alternative forms of pleasure and contentment. It would be incredibly helpful if we could get the public and the police on board, parroting lies about the dangers of drugs and the immorality of those who use them. If we nail the recipe, our patients' friends and family members might even begin to enforce tough love, effectively cutting off support from the outside world as addiction begins to set in. Once drug users realize our loved ones see us as broken and infectious, we often come to believe those lies ourselves. We can also stoke up the terror that drives addiction if we charge our patient grossly inflated prices, beginning a slow process which will eventually leave them bankrupt. We can make that terror inescapable by making all locations carry similar restrictions regarding the use of drugs. Designated spaces where people are allowed to use a substance without legal penalties are shown to reduce overall levels of consumption while encouraging responsibility. So getting rid of them would be a must if we really wanted to maximize addiction potential. We've seen the magic of sanctioned use areas reducing overall consumption play out repeatedly in the United States. Smoking areas not only reduce the spaces where people smoke, but they also reduce overall smoking rates. Dr. Mark's heroin clinic in England, and others like it across the world, where patients were given heroin and allowed to go about their business, have consistently reported that their patients are more likely to abstain from using street drugs than their counterparts who are in methadone treatment or 12-step programs. It turns out that when you provide authorized spaces for an activity, people start to respect the rules about abstaining in the unsanctioned spaces. When weed's illegal everywhere, smoking in the middle of a college campus is the same crime as smoking in one's home or in one's car. But when there's a smoking section, we tend to self-police and use it. If we wanted to avoid that effect, we should make sure there are no sanctioned use locations, no safe consumption sites, and consistent laws restricting our patient's use no matter where they go. We should also convince our patient that addiction is a disease, since holding that belief has, in itself, been shown to increase the likelihood and severity of relapse. If we did all these things, sadistic as they are, we could greatly increase the negative consequences of addiction simply by leaning into natural tendencies of human nature. I'm describing the United States, and we can no longer pretend that we don't know the truth about how to redesign a system that could reduce harm related to use. We just don't want to, at least not yet. But that day is getting closer all the time. And like my friend David Posey said when I last talked to him, he truly believed it will be within our lifetimes. That is, if we aren't all killed by the war before we live long enough to see it. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.